0: Yeah, yeah. And they were so careful. Can't be careful on an airplane, you know, <laughs> you
1: know. Uh, because I think they knew somebody at the beginning of the year, um, uh, break that uh, died from it or was very ill, so she was so cautious.
0: Well, I
2: saw, yeah, okay, let's pray. Bless the Lord, is cause. all holy scriptures and written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace, never hold fast. The blessed hope of everlasting life, just given us in our Savior Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. And now, have you ever considered that we could study Amos?
2: You know, um, I'll tell you about Amos because we're going to. I think we're going to finish First St. Like Peter mid Lent. Amos would be a, a, a good one, some hard-hitting prophet to close Lent with. Reading is right, and Amos certainly does that. So, if you matter of fact, I think I'd like to do some kind of prophet or some section, obviously like you know Isaiah's huge and goes on forever. <laughs> um, But but so let's think about that after we get down first thing Peter just some quick. I think
0: it's so hard to understand.
2: Yeah. I like a lot of things in the Bible, maybe 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 the thing to think about is to think about a discussion of yeah, what are prophets, why are they? Because most of the Bible the way the first thing you have to understand is what the heck am I doing? What's going on here? What's this all about? You need a history, you know, kind of cr- a chronological understanding, and then a narrative understanding. If you don't understand there's a story unfolding here, you pick up, you know, in chapter eight, you know, where the prophets are, are essentially confronting Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. It doesn't make any sense unless, you're, unless you understand what the covenant was, what's required of them, to let you understand the unique or the, the particular ways in which Israel is being unfaithful. And uh, the prophets are, in many ways, um, there's a a, a, a clear, uh, what we might call, uh, legal aspect to the prophets, uh, bringing, a, bringing a case against Israel on behalf of God. And you get this it would be in the New Testament too even with, uh, with john you know for example is why john's so big on witness i testify i bear witness because you're if you don't receive my witness you refuse it you're going to be guilty and in the end result of that for israel's destruction of the country in ad 70. so there's a there's a real story so I'm, yeah i think i have a good idea um
1: amos is certainly a possibility um prophets don't necessarily um Aren't as conducive to verse-by-verse verse studies that we tend to do, so we would probably have to like
2: read some, we talk in a larger picture and kind of hone in on certain things. So that's good. So we're we're back into uh, we're in First Peter. We <clears throat> we did a little bit of review last time. We're um, before and before we just jump right in to the word wise, likewise, a be submissive to your own husbands, I want to set some context for this again um, in terms of, of what Peter is talking about. We, we had this, but Peter's used a couple of images to describe what this New Testament community is about. He's used the idea of strangers and pilgrims. Where does that idea of strangers and pilgrims come from, and what is it referring to, what Old Testament? Situation is referring to.
0: And we talked about this at length last yeah, week. So no, we no, 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 I yeah. want to say Exodus, but I don't think that's right. Abraham. Huh? Abraham?
1: Abraham. So Abraham
2: referred to himself as a stranger yes. and a pilgrim when he was buying a burial cave for Sarah. Right. What did that mean? And Connie, hold on for a second. And let other people be uncomfortable <laughs> for a minute.
0: Um, sorry,
2: sorry. So I just work because I, I realize I'm plowing through some concepts that are pretty clear in my mind, and I realize it's been made known to me that not everyone was what I'm talking about, and you know, we have to stay in these concepts a little bit more. So, so, and and to because. Peter is addressing this New Testament Christian community, which he addressed in verse 1 as the pilgrims of the dispersion. And he's using various points of reference to to let them know what their identity is, who they are. One of them is their strangers and pilgrims. And, and that's meant to identify themselves as as, as Connie mentioned, their connection to Abraham. They have the same status and relationship to God that Abraham had.
0: What, what, what was caught up in that status of stranger and pilgrim for Abraham? Do you want me to answer?
1: Sure. Or let people yeah. suffer? <laughs> no,
0: you're here. Oh, I, know.
1: I know, and I don't have to leave today. Thank God. Um, he was just um, called out of his land, so it's like God calling him out of his land and he had to keep trusting God to keep leading him and um, he was a stranger in a pilgrim it's representing
2: so so he what else. what um <laughs> geographically where did Abraham end up what we call that
1: er? I like, well no, that's where he came he from. from he came from early okay. oh the well the promised land later the promised land yeah
2: came the promised land yeah. so Abraham lived there but did know. he, um, was he a resident of the land? No. 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 So stranger strange? and pilgrim is a technical term mm-hmm. for what would we call people who are here who are not citizens? Resident
1: alien. Yeah.
2: A resident alien. Mm-hmm. Abraham was, a. that's what, that's what when Peter calls the church as strangers and pilgrims, He's that that those two words we touched on
1: this last week, they were words that um, that the author of um, Genesis used to describe Abraham when he wanted
2: to buy a barrel cave for Sarah. He goes to the neighbor and says, I'm a stranger and a, a sojourner among you. Says, I'm a resident alien please sell me something to bury my dead people in because I have no rights. I don't own anything. And so he lets them. He. So when, when Peter is referring to the Christians as strangers and pilgrims, he's saying you in first century Asia minor, where all, all places you are, are like Abraham. Now, that didn't necessarily mean for them that they didn't own a home or property in Asia Minor. What did it mean?
0: They weren't citizens.
2: How so?
1: Our citizenship is in heaven.
2: Citizenship. They're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as we are, and therefore they have no lasting inheritance
1: here in this temporal arrangement. But now That's... That's the that's 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 what he's
2: trying to communicate to these first century Christians and to us that we are strangers and pilgrims. Gee, well, i, I well, home. then nobody home. i Well, that's but one of the problems is, and this is, this is one of the problems for oh, Christians is that the more we become rooted in the temporal, the more we become dislodged from the kingdom. The more comfortable we are here, let me put it another way. In the first century church always was saying, come, Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm.
1: They wanted Jesus to come. You know why? i free from this the Romans. Well, that was Israel after that. After that. Because they gave up all their money to be with each other <laughs> and all their land at the beginning and in they Jerusalem? They were expecting. They,
2: oh. they tended to be poor. They were persecuted. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. They were martyred sometimes. Because, just because they believed, and they wanted Jesus to come and right this wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Come and, well, now, and it's just like Israel, it, in the, it was in the, in the um, wilderness, they were more, oh, Lord, help us. Then they went to the promised land and built homes, planted vineyards.
0: Give me long life. And, <laughs>
2: and so, our, one of our modern Western problems is we become at home in this world. Mm-hmm. So, we hold on to it. We don't feel like we're strangers in pilgrims. We feel like we're citizens here. And this is actually a pretty big deal for for Christians, especially in our country, where there's a great deal of patriotism. I'm not speaking against that. But we're not. But Peter's saying, no, you're not a citizen of America. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that citizenship trumps this one. And there's ever any conflict of allegiance. And that's what he says in, in, for example, St. Paul says it. In the epistle to the Philippians, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, that's Philippians chapter 3. Now, that particular epistle of St. Paul to the Philippians, one of the reasons he uses that is, Philippi was a Roman colony, where retired military soldiers went, and they were very proud of their Romanism, and he's saying, no, that's not your citizenship, you're not it's not the, and St. Paul, remember, St. Paul said that was himself a Roman citizen. And so this, so, anyway, getting back to Peter, the, these first century Christians are very much aware of um,
1: their marginalized status in the world. They don't, um, they don't have any standing in the world.
2: And St. Peter would call some strangers to pilgrims, he thinks think you'd no standing either. You're waiting for your inheritance. And that's what he's meaning. He's meaning to cast their setting for their Christian life in light of Abraham's
1: setting. And the more you go to, um, the more impoverished
2: or disadvantaged an area is, the more the Christians who live there resonate with that. that. Yes. Yes. The more comfortable they get, the more they forget. And, and that's, that is why one of the spiritual disciplines that we practice in, in tithing and generosity is to dispossess ourselves. We have all this stuff. We have to live loosely with it because it's not a lasting thing. But we have a tendency to think about it that way. So anyway, that's one image that Peter's using is you're you're passing through your strangers and pilgrims, you're 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 wanderers on you're working away, um, though you're in the kingdom of the Holy Spirit, yet you're moving towards the consummation of the kingdom of the coming of Jesus. And that's what you're that's this that's the treasure laid up, your inheritance laid up, as he says, uh, in
1: heaven. Another image that he uses here is um of, of that they're um, living stones. And what was, what,
2: what what we talked about this last time, but I really think it's important to go over this, let's see, blow through Peter and
1: nobody really knows what I'm talking about. If you got to sink in. Except <laughs> so for you. Is that um, what when he calls these Christians living stones being built together into a
2: a house to make acceptable sacrifices to God he
1: is drawing an analogy to um, what Old Testament building the temple the temple and how we talked about this last time how was the Old Testament temple fulfilled in the person of Jesus I wasn't
0: anymore. He, why he still didn't
1: live there anymore where did he live he had left the temple but Jesus showed back up in the temple where did he live in Christ in Christ
2: the word was made flesh and dwelt among us he is the image of the invisible God so the reason that Jesus makes the temple irrelevant God for since since the God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai and said, here, I'm going to live in a tent. Take this with you. Put the ark in there. Wander around, and I'll meet you there. Because this, this is where I live in the tent. Wander through the wilderness in the tent. We go to the promised land. And who built the temple?
0: Solomon.
2: Solomon. huh? Solomon. It's it so, as it saw, I'm gonna yeah. omen there. To go. Solomon did
0: it. <laughs> David's
2: son Solomon built the temple so God no longer lived in a tent, he wasn't camping out anymore. He had a permanent residence in Jerusalem.
1: And, and, and if you read in um, Kings, I think I want to say it's First
2: Kings chapter eight. but Solomon, after the temple is built, he he utters a long prayer of dedication, and then God, in a sort of cloud of glory, comes down and takes up residence in the temple.
0: And no one could. It was like, oh, this is good. and that's where God lived in the temple.
1: Um. What happened, we touched on this last week about, but so that was, that
2: temple was built uh, chronologically um, about 970 B.C., right around 1000 B.C. That's where the kingship of Saul, David, Solomon takes place. Saul is in the thousands, or David, Solomon, Um, And so God takes up residence in the temple
1: about 970 B.C., moves out of the tent. When did God leave the temple? We
2: touched on this. I don't expect you to remember, but I might be uncomfortable with the question for a minute.
1: When Christ came? No. No. Oh, when they were captured with the Babylonians. So what what prophet? There's a prophet. Elijah?
2: Who uh, chronicles (laughs) God's departure from the temple.
1: I thought it was e. Hmm. It's Ezekiel?
2: It's e. It's an E prophet. This is E
1: that's what I say. It right. The prophet
2: Ezekiel.
0: Okay.
2: Um, and if you you know have a, a you can you can read the whole thing, the one through ten, it's a little what's going on here. But we have some sense maybe after we do this we'll spend some time with prophets. Hmm. That'd be fun. Hmm. Um,
0: but he chronicles <laughs> that in
2: Ezekiel lives about six hundred B C uh, okay. and minus it starts earlier, lives after and and so um, and remember the temple is going to be destroyed by the Babylonians in five eighty six B.C. So it stood Solomon's temple stood from about nine seventy B.C. to five eighty six B.C. That's when Israel God lived there in the temple. But Ezekiel, when he's sent to prophesy to minister
0: to the people of Israel, he um,
1: God gives Ezekiel visions of what's going on in the temple. There's idol worship in the temple, and so here's what happened. Just because
2: I don't want to. But it's important for this temple imagery. Um, Ezekiel actually was with when, when the Babylonians conquered Israel around 600 BC to 586 BC and beyond. They actually took people into exile in stages. They first surrounded it and imposed tribute and took some away. Then they came again because Israel rebelled and did it again and finally just destroyed it. Ezekiel was one of the earlier exiles. So a lot of his ministry is actually in Babylon, but the temple still standing. So God gives Ezekiel visions. He takes him into vision to the temple and he shows him what's going on. And there's idolatry in all these side rooms. He sees uh, these sun worshipers. At the door of the temple, worshiping the rising sun, which means they got their butts to God.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, at the end, of, so, so what, what essentially happens, to Ezekiel, is God, God, see, uh, Ezekiel has a vision of God leaving the temple. He rises up between the cherubim. And this is, there's two places that the cherubim are described in some detail in the Bible. One is in Ezekiel, when he has his vision of the, of the cherubim rising up. The other is in Revelation, uh, the living creatures of Revelation chapter 4. But we know it's not mysterious because there's a refrain in the Bible. God dwells between the cherubim. We said it today. Blessed art thou that beholdest the depths and dwells between the cherubim. The cherubim are those angelic beings that God that define God's presence. In the whole, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Tabernacle and in the, in the Temple, we had the Ark of the Covenant, but God, uh, told Moses to build images of cherubim whose wings overshadowed the Ark. So they represented that, they represented the reality of the way it actually was with God. So God left the Temple and in Ezekiel, and he, this is uh, an important thing about to understand is that he never really came back. So that in the chronology here, um, five eighty six, the temple was destroyed. Israel goes into exile in Babylon. It was a seventy year exile, and after the seventy years, Israel comes back. Well, they come back about five forty, but the temple is completed in five fifteen, and you get this in. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah talk a little bit about about the rebuilding of the temple and how this happens. So the temple is built again, they can resume worship, but there's no rededication like Solomon had, and there's no arrival of the glory cloud. There's this shell of of its former self, uh, and it's not nearly so beautiful as Solomon. You know, he imported silver and gold and you know, wood, and that and this is like, you know. Um. So the image then is that, and, and the, the other important thing for the New Testament understanding is in Ezekiel, when God leaves the temple, the cherubim pick up the presence, and they go and they stop at the
1: threshold of the temple. Then they go out of Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives. So and he never comes back. Now, how does that relate for
2: us then to say upcoming feast called Palm Sunday? How does Jesus approach Jerusalem?
0: Mount
2: of Mount of Olives. The in Israel here. <laughs>
0: yes.
2: So if you're the Mount of Olives, across the city, across the Kidron Valley, <clears throat> into the thing, <throat> God had left. And so when you see Jesus um, on a donkey coming to the temple. The glory of God is coming back to the temple, but what did they do? Crucify. They crucify. Him. They reject Him. But to, to get our analogy straight, the temple is the location where God lives. But since the incarnation, God, after that hiatus of presence in Israel, He becomes flesh, and this is why in Jesus' ministry. One of the subtexts of the Gospels is that Jesus is continually acting as though he can, by his mere word, do everything that you thought you had to go to the temple
1: to do. So, like when he says your sins are forgiven, they're saying, well, no, you got to go offer sacrifice, go see the
2: priest, and you do all this, maybe you get forgiven. Jesus says, no, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus... Def- did- The very definition of who Jesus is, God
1: in human human form, fulfills the temple, which was God now lives in him. So, as we move that metaphor forward, um, crucified, dead, buried, third day rose, ascended into heaven, and then. what
2: feast comes next on the calendar after the Ascension, major feast?
1: Pentecost. Pentecost. Yeah. Okay. So on Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes at fire. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit comes, yeah. and what's the relationship? So where does the Holy Spirit come into the church? Or how does the the... the which is define and talk about it so now as as we
2: understand through jesus baptism that the holy spirit descended on jesus and he said this is my beloved son it means god the spirit is in christ from the father pentecost now god jesus gives that spirit to us and he comes to live in us
0: mm-hmm
2: in a derivative and lesser way, to be sure, but in the same essential way that that, that Jesus... So if Jesus, therefore, is the temple, the the place where God dwells, the church now filled with the Spirit is his body and also, therefore, the temple. This is the image Peter's picking up on, you as living stones being built together as a spiritual house, is that God now doesn't dwell in the building in Jerusalem anymore. And that's why
1: the temple was destroyed in AD 70. He lives now in um, his church. He lives in us. And it's very, it's very important. It's a very important reason to understand why buildings
2: are not as important to us as the, as the temple was. God doesn't live in a building. Now, I want to say something about this because I thought about this because if you can work that out. The, the temple in Jerusalem was important
1: because that's where God lived. He didn't live in the people. You had to go there to find him. I mean there's a sense which he's ever more present I get that. But um now he lives in his people, the building's not as important. Although what I've come to
2: realize about the building is it's not important as a building in and of its sense in and of itself. What it's important as it's the look the physical geographic historical location where this version of God's people meets and encounters God. And since that encounter with God happens in this space, and a lot of things happen in that space, it has a significance. But we'll notice what happens if if the community begins to depart from the faith or lose its faith, the building will have much more and more of a museum quality. This is the debate Mary and I have about churches in England, because I, I feel I feel a lot of them have a great history, a lot of great things happened there, but there's a lot of of dead spirituality present now, and you begin to get the sense of it's a, and what it needs is a so a community um, so the church is not unimportant, it's important this year, but but it's, but 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 the presence of God will not. Continue to dwell in a physical location apart from a faithful body that experiences him in that in that place.
1: Can I ask you a question, Bishop, about the presence of God. So, you know, you talk about that that God lived in the temple, but isn't that just, you know, that He would meet them in the temple, or was He, you know, because He wasn't completely just residing there?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, um, in, in in Acts. Um, before St. Stephen is martyred, he gives a, a long sermon. One of he says that, you know, that But the temple, he said, well, God doesn't, no one really thought like God lived in this small thing called the temple. The, the theology was that the, um, it's a very sacramental theology which still prevails among us, which is that through this symbolic representation of the ultimate reality, by entering into the symbolic representation of the ultimate reality, you encounter the reality itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, the, and the word for the, the way it was described in the Old Testament is the temple is God's footstool. No one No one thought, yeah, he all this here, but it's, it's like God. So the footstool, it's a, it's a place where he comes down to be with his people. Everyone knows that even the Solomon's prayer of dedication says this, we know that no, nothing can contain you, but nonetheless you're here. So um, that's still why we have churches that have, and why we symbolic setups are important, because it still follows on the principle that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, that heaven is, there are certain truths that,
1: Inform the reality of heaven, where God lives. When God told Moses to build the temple,
2: he meant to, he told him to build the way that when you see the temple, you get some insight into the truth about God. There's a holy of holies, God, You can't appro- and you can't approach him there. And There's a barrier, a curtain, you can't get there. And the people can be out here, and there's a certain way they can get to him by sacrifice, but they
1: can't just blow in. Excuse me. That reality was changed, or
2: a a cosmic change. This is why so the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus is so important. It was changed by Jesus. When when it says on Good Friday that the veil of the temple was torn in two, it symbolically means the barrier to access that humans encountered in trying to get to God has now been removed because God has become man and fulfilled all the covenant requirements. And now we can come right into the Holy of Holies. So still the church has a symbolic value, but it's not just, just the old covenant, it's the fulfilled covenant. We don't have a veil keeping us from. Yet We do um, what we do remember Eucharistically and, and symbolically are the ways that how, so how do we? What do we learn from the Eucharist? We learn that God, yeah, there's a sanctuary. God lives there. There's a of The people are there. And we learn that we come into union with God through Christ, who is mediated to us by the liturgy of the Word, the words of the Scriptures, and then by His sacrifice, which we remember. And we present and we're accepted in him. And through that sacrifice, we have union communion. This is why the, the that symbolism is not an important, even when early church met in houses, that symbolism, you still had a way that that carried it out. So when we have, when we create the architecture of the church, it's important that it reflects the truth of the way God is. And, and, um, the, the principal thing I would say that in the, in the modern and contemporary world that, that people get away from this essential symbolism is to avoid the cross. And it's, it's a paradox that Jesus has offered the sacrifice that requires no more sacrifices, yet still we can only come to him through his sacrifice and through our repentance and faith. So we must turn away from sin and come to God this way. And what happens in in the modern world, we go, oh, God loves everybody. We skip the reality of sin, skip the reality of the cross. And that's why I think the Eucharist is so central because as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is, it is, he's done this. We can't forget that. We can't, we can't forget that we entered into uh, that. But, so to get us back to Peter then, uh, and, and to, to, to bring this point together and lead into a little bit of time on chapter three today, <clears throat> um where Peter says you're living stones, you're being, so together we are a temple. And it's important to understand there that it's not, this gets us away from a kind of a cultural era, which is a rampant individualism. Yes, God dwells in me and you individually, but he principally dwells in us as a body. We're supposed to be together. <clears throat> and, and we're supposed to live in community and love each other. And that's hard. And that's the task. That you love one another as I've loved you. No, so, that's right. Well, as I've loved you. It was hard for him to love us. It's hard for us to love each other. as our vocation. And to, to to abandon, so we're in a community, we're built together, and we get together and offer the sacrifices. We are together the temple. I don't mean there's not a, a way in which each of us individually praying, but even when individually praying, we're praying as members of the body. And then he also used the image of priesthood, because Christ's sacrifice reconciles us to he fulfills the priesthood. We, in Christ, have the ability to blow right into the Holy of Holies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And praise God. But principally, again, together, the way we approach. So, we, so what Peter means to say is, using these metaphors of strangers and pilgrims, you're like Abraham, you're one, you have no inheritance here, your inheritance is there. You're a holy priesthood, or a temple, you're the new temple, and you're a holy priesthood. All that was talking the altar, you have fulfilled. And you have this wonderful privilege of access to God and you have an inheritance that no tragedy
1: or anything in this world can take away from you. Now, that is what we talked about last time when he starts getting into
2: submission to government, submission of of workers to masters, and then today
1: submission of wives to husbands. All of that is about how... Given this is who we are, yeah, enough of that, I don't we hear this, why? The I start? She's,
0: She's leaving like at the right John. time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you brought up the other church. Leave, John. It's his fault. But I'm leaving.
2: It's supposed to be that way around. The woman that thou gavest me, you're saying the man that thou gavest mm-hmm.
0: me. Sometimes it is. Sorry. Um, I'm sorry.
2: Uh, so, um. The point is these, these behavioral exhortations are not moralisms. They flow out of, since we are this pilgrim people who have the special relationship with God as, as, as a royal, a temple, a priesthood, how should we then engage the world? We should engage the world as faithful witnesses. So we obey the government. We don't. That's what he said last time. We we there's a whole host of issues we worked it out last time, we're not gonna visit that today about that, but in general the witness is we're doing the right thing here. Workers, you know, submissive your masters, we're we're gonna do good work to the glory of God, and even if the boss isn't, we're not gonna we're not going to use that as justification to respond unjustly and to steal and to get back at him. Or in the first century workers they want to sabotage unjust master's property, because they were angry. That's not the Christian witness. You are this people, therefore do this. So all that we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to behave, completely flows out of who we are. And it's the idea of witness in the world, in a world which is passing, in which we have no permanent inheritance, but in which we're ambassadors and witnesses of this other thing. And if we lose that, we're going to get well. Yeah, I'm not you know, going to submit. You know, you get that with the marriage saying, "I'm not going to submit to my." Husband. <laughs> I'm <not> going <laughs> to <get laughs> <gonna laughs> this, okay, that's you're, you're missing your Christian vocation. But that whatever whatever state in life you find yourself—a worker to a boss, a citizen to a government, wife to husband, husband to wife—you're always first and foremost a member of the body who's bearing witness, an ambassador. And the big problem in the Christian life is when. Temporal justification
1: or temporal relief of pain is more important than faithfulness. That's where our compromises come in. Because we can all be,
2: you know, when, when the boss is great, we can all be good workers. The government is just, we can all obey. When the, you know, when the marriage is great, hey, what happens when, somebody, when I have to suffer for it? Will we continue to do the right thing? And that's, that's how we'll jump in here. In um, chapter three, he says, "Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their
1: wives, when they when they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear." Um,
0: I think we have to be clear here
2: in this this idea of submission, which is a a kind of, um, I think it means, um, you know, understood in the light of Genesis 3, it is, stay connected to your husband, don't act unilaterally without a common
1: mind, and sometimes you might have to go on something you don't agree with. Why? Because you're bearing witness to something. And what makes this hard for us, what makes submission hard for us, is um,
0: we're fighting a battle for our justification, and I need it from you.
1: What remedies that is if we have a firm sense of, of God's acceptance of us. And now I don't
2: need it from you, I'm free to be unjustified. I don't need you to. And that's psychologically what I've noticed in church is when you see people fighting off. Oh, it's like you're, you're still fighting a battle. You're still trying to get vindication in the world. We all, are. this is not like them. <laughs> and all of us are fighting the, right, the wrong battle at times. But, but the point is, if we fully understand who we are, we can be who we are in all circumstances. And this is where Jesus is. He submits himself to death on the cross. Is that just? No. But notice, and this is the other aspect of this I want to be clear about, because it sounds like, well, I'm just supposed to be walked all over. First, of all, I don't think that means that. It doesn't mean you can't, you have, a, marriage doesn't have a voice and there isn't, an, and you don't, you can't be strong about that voice. It means you can't be, angry and vindictive with your voice you're you're having a relationship but it also means that when we do the right thing in the face of someone else doing the wrong thing whether it's a husband to wife and wife to husband or a worker to a um we believe that god sees it all and that our doing the right thing will have a reward so when we're opting for faithfulness we're opting for the reward and the judgment that God's, that the,
1: the well done that Christ is going to give us over the satisfaction I can get by kneeling you right now. I remember, uh,
0: I thought it was close to my mind, when kids were young, and um
1: remember Eric did something to Alexander. Alexander punched him. I said, You did yeah. that make you feel better? He
2: said, Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but that's the thing is like sometimes that temporal litigation yeah but then the more we get away from this it, like okay what did I get I had a moment where I, I stood over you and said yay now i now I'm guilty of a sin because I've responded to your evil with my evil and now I'm just before God like the rest of the world
0: mm-hmm.
2: so our status is to always do the right thing the right thing is sometimes to speak out and say I don't agree with this or I think you're doing the wrong thing, but just never to sin in response to sin. That's the vocation that comes out of our status as strangers and pilgrims and a royal priesthood and a holy temple. Um, and that's and that's what this is all about. Um, and that, so that they can be a witness to their to their husbands. Uh, uh, and it says in verse three, do not let your adornment be merely outward, actually merely is a supplied word it says literally don't let your dormant be outward arranging the hair wearing gold or putting on fine apparel doesn't mean you can't wear nice clothes and look nice it means it's it's a balance here of don't let you who you are all about your physical appearance and of course our area is full of that here right it's all about you look so good it's like yeah there's a lot going on underneath that that is uh, probably a little um, sometimes the inward beauty doesn't match the outward beauty. And that's the beauty of a uh, of a uh, uh, and this is what he got us on to say here. Don't be outward arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Yeah that what God values and approves of is different than what world values and approves of. Mm-hmm. Which means we have to, through, through our prayer, continually be strengthened in that space to endure the other space where it's not valued. So we can be who we are. And that's truly who we are, but we get distracted by the world is competition. You know, we get envy and, you know, and, and, and so, we have to work on being contented with who we are and, 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 and therefore entering these, these other spaces as ambassadors. For this manner the former, in the former times, verse five, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, which is interesting. Sarah did do that, but uh, she also spoke her mind pretty readily, (laughs) (laughs) um, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror. I think one of the things about this um, submission thing, we always continually bear in mind um, that God is a God of order, and um, it's, it's not authoritarian. But the opposite of, of, of submission is um, properly in the Bible, rebellion. So when you when we openly rebel against the order that God has established, we're we're openly rebelling against God Himself. When we are righteously responding to the unrighteous behavior of those who have positions of authority in an order, there's a way to 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 confront it. That's not unrighteous. That's the prophets.
1: But. There's never a justification to do what is wrong in order to confront what is wrong. So um, that's, that's so there there that's that's what that's this is that's what this is
2: about is honoring you know and 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 so he goes on to say then in verse seven husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Weaker there I think just means Women are generally smaller and not as strong. Um,
1: but remembering the value of the kingdom, the, 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 what was thought of as weakness, which is su- full submission to, to God,
2: is more valuable than human strength. And so the, the, the epitome of this, of course, is, is, is uh, Mary. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord be unto me according to thy word. Full submission of herself. And she, and that's the, that is the pathway to becoming exalted in the kingdom. But sometimes it's not the pathway to getting a little recognition right now. So there's always the, the submission to God through the, the structures of authorities put in place um, requires of us to struggle. And we just, I think the one thing spiritually to remember is that, that sometimes we, 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 we object to something that's literally wrong and we need to express it and that's right. Sometimes we're just offended. Our pride is put out. We have to be aware of those two parts of us. So when we want to, when we want to um, address something wrong with the government or at work or at, at, at home, it's always good to um, wait a while the time you're all upset pray about it think about it let it let your reactivity die down get to the place okay what are we, what are we got to say here i've noticed that in my own life when it settles down realize, I was a man.
1: it was happens if you wake up the next morning you go no i'm really actually <laughs> <laughs> i really need to say something now yeah. but no those would be nature things but sometimes maybe that's like a that's when something could be just like you let it simmer a bit, and then you can go not being angry, right?
2: Not being angry, thoughtfully yeah. expressing this is how I feel about that, yeah, and letting it be known justly. And, and that's right. Remind me of Simpson episode where Homer went to buy a gun because he, he says, and the guy says, uh, "I'm sorry, sir. There's a five day waiting period." And he says, "But I'm mad now."
0: <laughs> 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 Maybe that's why there's fun. Yeah, 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 it is why. Yeah, it is
2: why. That, was, that, was, that was a great. Uh, i would have yes and that some of those some of those shows really parody things in a wonderful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, here, a husband's likewise dwell with him, giving honor to the wife." He says, "Being heirs together to the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered." suggesting that that the, the sort of overbearing husband who is authoritarian may not have the, if, and, and, and notice that the way that Christ deals with this church is the way the husband, as, as St. Paul says in Ephesians, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Um, husbands have a vocational duty to to, to be sacrificially present like Christ. Which is a hard thing. Men men have their own um, uh, challenge with that, because it's easy, um, just as it's hard for women to, in some sense, submit as St. Paul's, uh, St. Peter say, but it's hard for husbands to stay in the midst of all the, uh, and and their vocation is to not run away. Because I think we go back, a lot of this marriage stuff, we can we can work out with a meditation on Genesis 3, um, where the essential sins or disorders, relational disorder of Genesis 3 is, first, Eve acted unilaterally. She took the food and ate. She didn't. So the submission there would have been, okay, I yeah, us talking about this, and not doing that without a communal decision. Adam, for his part, his sin was abdication, because it's very clear from the Genesis text that he was there for the entire conversation. And this all going on, I think, I think that may be what we get, maybe the first time that fear came into the human experience, there's this spiritual being, the serpent, and so Adam just just checked out that's what men tend to do the motion term is they check out and they go, go get beer watch a game you know and, and so they have to and and part of the dynamic
1: here for marriage is that um if men were strong they wouldn't check out hmm. but when women that, that's why uh, you know it,
2: the the submitting the the allowing giving space for the man to at least grow into what he's supposed to be without cutting him off at the knee is because he'll run because he, he knows he's not Christ, even though he's supposed to be. And so that's kind of the dynamic. It's really not, um, and what the submission of, of, a of a wife to a husband and the, um, Husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church. It takes a great deal of personal strength to submit. Because then you have to really be clear that you're fighting a battle for Christ. And you have enough strength not to need to work it out right here in this space with this person. Likewise, for a man to going to stay here, even though I'm, I may be feeling disrespected, I may whatever, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I know I am enough that I, I don't have to run away from. It and but that's the ordering of of and i think that it begins with it, the the scriptural injunction begins with the wives always
1: because in genesis it was eve who began by acting unilaterally <clears throat>
0: So all of—I just want to highlight again—all of those
2: behavioral things: how you're supposed to behave with the government, how you're supposed to behave at work, how you're supposed to behave in marriage—all is result of who you are as a Christian in Christ, the stranger and pilgrim, you know, a, a, a royal priesthood. It's witness in the world. It's not um, the goal is not mere temporal success. Although um, the long-term benefit of this is things will go better. And you'll be at peace. You won't feel guilty because you can stand before God when we when we do the right thing always, we can come to our prayer without feeling guilty. We respond to the evil with the good, we, we're no longer blameless. So before we can go deal with the thing, now I gotta go deal with my own sin. That's the, and that's marriage advice, because if you respond husband, wife, wife, husband, if you if something happens, you do the wrong thing. God, now you want to confront it. We've got to go deal with your stuff first. <laughs> You've lost your high ground. You've got no moral place to stand now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You've got to fix your own. So that's, that's why we want to remain blameless. We can we can, <clears throat> so we can, we can present our case to God and ask Him to judge for us. Verse mm-hmm. 8. Finally, all of you be of <laughs> one mind, having compassion for
1: one another. This is love one another as Christ has loved you. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not
2: returning evil from evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, a blessing. Know that you were called to this, this is vocation. This is your vocation. You, you, you are um, following Christ in the way of the cross, called to live the way of the cross on the journey that works through the cross to the resurrection. Each of our share of that cross is includes the difficulty of loving those we find difficult to love. So when you say, like, when he says, all of you be of one by having compassion for another, it doesn't mean like your best friends in church. Mm -hmm. It means who who in this body do I find
1: it hardest to love? Think about that. Mm -hmm. That's where the vocation is. It's always easy. Um, uh, So Jesus
2: said, you know. Love your enemies and pray for those who said, "If you do good to those, good to you." What good is that? Everybody does that. So this is this is the details of love in the body that Jesus commanded.
1: Be tender-hearted, courteous, always remembering that when you you came to God asking Him to forgive you for what you did, then whatever you're angry about, be 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 willing to. Have the
2: same kind of attitude towards the other. Not returning evil, free evil or revival, but in the contrary, a blessing. Know that you're called to this that you may inherit the blessing.
1: We follow vocation, we have an inheritance. Four, and this is a quote from the Psalm. Um, <coughs>
0: psalm uh, being quoted here is 34, 34, yes, 34, actually 34. And
2: Um, So 34, it says, he would love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good but then seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And remember, so this vocational sense is, um, follows in in the pattern of Christ, um,
1: which he he will bring up uh, at at the end of this chapter. But but Christ, The eyes that were on the righteous, in the most particular sense, the righteous is Jesus. The eyes of the Lord are
2: on him. And, and the, the prayers of Jesus to the Father were that his case, he would be vindicated. He was condemned by the world on Good Friday. Easter, we have to understand
1: Easter as being a, a judicial judgment. So much of, of, the, of the Bible is court scene. It
2: is God declaring His Son to be righteous and, and
1: raising Him to life. I vote for you. I hear your prayer. Why? Because you were righteous. You
2: didn't respond to evil with evil. You, you, you. And so we, following that, if we want our prayers to be heard, we have to maintain that posture of righteousness in Christ, which means we need to confess a lot and purify <laughs> our motives. But that makes our prayers powerful because God, the, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, upon those who live and dwell in Christ. And that's how our prayers get answered. And it gets back to, we said the husbands,
0: your prayer may not be hindered. If you're acting unrighteously, you can't expect God to, to hear you.